And I hope your, uh, your hearts are open because we got to do some cool things in a lot of time, in a little amount of time now because I just spent 10 minutes on a joke. And so, and it wasn't even that great. But I want to tell you today, either in this room or behind that camera, whether you're watching on YouTube or whatever it is you're watching on, you land in one of three spots. And I want to address it this morning. First of all, you know God. You've been a believer. You started a relationship with him. And right now, you and God's uh, relationship is probably like... The, in the words of the great Forrest Gump, you are like peas and carrots. Like you wake up hearing Chris Tomlin tunes in your ears. Like it's right, right now, you and God couldn't get any closer. And to you, I high five you and say, that's awesome. Keep on pushing. You're in the second boat. You know God. And this is where I would say a few people behind that lens and possibly in this room land. You know God, you've begun a relationship with him at some point in your life, maybe become saved is what we call it in the church terms, but for some reason right now, you feel like you're right here and God's over here. Does that make sense? Like there's a gap there. Something happens, like you don't hear his voice, like something's came in. And let me tell you what that is. It's called sin. The reality is sin is going to separate us from God. You know why? Because God's a holy God, a perfect God. He sent his son Jesus to die for those sins, so he wants nothing to do with them. So when we create those things, when we create, that creates the separation between us and God is what happens as sin comes in. And you might be in that room in that room today. And there's a third one, and that is you've never began a relationship with God. It's some, maybe this is the first time you've ever even watched an online service. If it is, bless your heart, but I'm glad that you're here. Maybe you've never been to church, and this is your first time coming to church. I want to say to you this. God loves you. You, you might just need to hear just that. Like, you may not feel loved. God loves you. So much so, that he sent his perfect son, Jesus, so that he could spend eternity with you. I hope that kind of jars you a little bit this morning because it floors me when I think about the fact that he would send his best gift to take my junk on him. And because of that, we can begin a relationship with God. And so whatever position you're in, one, two, or three, I hope that you go. If you're in three and you've never met God, I hope today we move that relationship to two. If you're in two and you've got some separation, I hope you get that taken care of because we're going to talk about how to do that today. And if you're in one, I hope you're encouraged to tell other people to come from three to two to one, right? And so anyway, not to be multi-level marketing, but that is where you are today, right? You're in one of those places, and I want you to answer the questions to where you are. But let me tell you one little thing about me. Here's one of those things I think is it's just interesting. I just, for me, I love fishing. Anybody else in this room enjoy fishing? Amen. You can be man, woman, boy, girl, whatever, right? Come on and preach. Yes, I enjoy fishing, but I just got into fly fishing. Anybody like fly fishing in the room of them? Oh, right, cool. I think we should start a men's, women's fly fishing, fly fishing's life group where we go out and do that kind of stuff. Well, if you don't know about fly fishing, I'm going to tell you real quick about it, and then we're going to tear into the sermon because I was, Scott revealed something to me this week I just thought was so cool. I love it, but it's very challenging. The reason why is it's not like just tying a line on and throwing it out there and it's done. You, you, there's a whole process to it. Like It involves, first of all, you're not just aiming at the pond. You're usually aiming at like a small, behind a small rock or something like that. Your target's small, but then it's not just like throwing it out. It's a lot of casts. Like You may have seen them doing it on TV and you go, oh, that's pretty easy, but there's a rhythm to it. I know a little about rhythm because I'm also the substitute bass player, but we, we, we get this, you have to cast, and as you're casting, if you want to get out farther, you have to pull more line out, and then you go back and forth, and there's a whole process to it. You go from 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock, 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock. That's where you stop. And then when you're ready, everybody do that with me, 10 o'clock, 
10 o'clock, 3 o'clock. It's just more fun. 10 o'clock, 3 It makes me feel like I'm Richard Simmons. Anyway, and so you're, you're casting, right? You're getting this whole thing, and then you finally find the spot, and you land it there. If you happen to get all that together, and it lands in the right spot, then you still have to trick the fish and give him the right bait. And then if you do trick him to bite it, you still have to set the hook the right way. It is tough. It is frustrating, yet very rewarding. There was a time this week, I, I went last week, and I wasn't here. My family and I went camping, and I went with my dad, and He's just the one that got me into fly fishing. I'm not great at it, but I'm getting there. And, and so we're working our way upstream. And, and just free advice, if you're thinking about getting into fly fishing, you work upstream because the fish face upstream. So you start behind them so you don't run them off. And so we're coming up, and I come to this huge boulder. I mean, ginormous, nine feet tall, huge. And so I'm trying to cast him behind it and just to get the right spot. And I notice some people on the bank taking pictures. I'm like, huh, well, I mean. I am kind of cute my waiters on, you know. I mean, I'm working it out, you know. And so I thought, you know, this will be, I want to give them a good picture. You know, I'm not just going to give them a, you know, I want to give them something like off ESPN. So I peel out a bunch of line. And the farther, the more line you get out, the harder it is because you have to get out and you have to watch that line and you have to come back at just the right time. And then when it gets back here, you got to start forward at just the right time. And so I peel out a bunch of lines. So, oh, baby, get it ready. Field and stream, here I come. And I come back and when I go to slink, whew, all of a sudden, Nothing happens. I mean, I'm like, yuck, And when I do that, like, line goes everywhere, except for the line that I thought I hooked. And all of a sudden, something pops me in the back of the head. I just know it's my hook. And I scream like a teenage girl at a Justin Bieber concert. And I'm like, what? What is happening? And I've got line all wrapped around me, wind's blowing. I'm like, ooh. And I, I just kind of look around. I kind of reel my line in. And I go back. And my line is hooked on the bush behind me. And I look up, and the same people that were doing this were going, no doubt thinking, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> I reel my line in and I learned a lesson. Well, one, pride comes before the fall. But the other lesson that I learned, we don't want to talk about that one. The other lesson was this. In life, it's not always the stuff that's right in front of you that hangs you up. Sometimes it's the stuff behind you, isn't it? I mean, has it ever been the stuff behind you that just kind of trips you up and hangs you up? Well, today I want to talk about the life of a story of a guy that no matter where you fall on the spectrum of Jesus, you probably know who he is. His name is David. And if you've not been in church for a long time or whether you have been in church a long time, when I hear, when I talk about David, most people's mind immediately goes to David and Goliath. Oh, I love this guy. Good gracious, because that was the next one. The thing about David's life is he had really high highs and then he also had really low lows. Most people think of David and Goliath, but if you've been in church a while, you may have thought of David and Bathsheba. A lot of churches don't like to talk about that one because that's a little sketchy. You know what I'm saying? Like, we like to talk about David's good side, but sometimes we get talking about that, it's a little bit scurry. But the reason I want to talk about this is because isn't that kind of how all of, if we're real today, like it's just us and those people on the screen. If it's just us, can we be real for a minute and say that sometimes our life is really here? Sometimes it's here. Sometimes God feels like when I wake up, he's right there and we're best buddies. And sometimes I'm like, where in the world are you? Can we be real? David did it. He even said, there was a couple of Psalms we wrote and said, where are you in these quiet times? 
Well, I want to talk about the story of David. I am not going to have a chance to read all the verses because it would take way too much time. But I do want to walk you through his life. And it kind of picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You're welcome to flip there. But, but David, in his story, there's three people, three main characters I want to talk about. First of all, David. We got him figured out. His dad, Jesse. And then the third one is a man named Samuel. Samuel was the prophet. If you don't know what prophets are, they're kind of like the pastors. The difference are is that this, that the, the, the prophets of those times literally had conversations with God. Like God would literally talk to them audibly. Now, they wouldn't, I don't think they sat down and hung out, but they would listen and they would tell them things. And so the prophets then would go to the kings or the people of those, of those towns and tell them, hey, this is what God has said to me. So God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, the next appointed king of Israel, the next appointed king of my people is in the house of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. Remember that? All right. So here's what he says. He says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and pick out, and I will tell you from there who is going to be the anointed king of Israel. Here's the question I came up with right off the bat. Why didn't God just say, go to Jesse's house, David's out there, pick him out? He didn't. He wasn't specific. He just said, go. I want you to go, and I'll give you directions from there. Because, some, because God doesn't always give just God gives direction, but he doesn't always give directions. I'm going to say it again. God gives us direction, but doesn't always give us directions. You know why? Because somewhere in there, we've got to figure out a little bit of faith and listening to God. Because it doesn't always matter the what, but what matters is the who sent me. So you, I don't, this is for somebody today because it's punched me between my eyes this week. Sometimes God just says, hey, look, I just want you to go. And you may be in the moment where you're saying, no, I feel like God's telling me to go, but I don't, I'm not, not sure what he wants me to do. Listen, you don't have to know what you got to do. All you got to know is who is sending you. And so if God's telling you to go, go and let him fill out all the deets from there, right? And so he gets there and he, he, he walks up and he says, hey, Jesse, I got some good news. Uh, one of your sons is going to be the next anointed king. And if you're a dad, you're going, this is pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, my, my son's the next anointed king. This is going to be cool. And so he says, bring in your sons. Jesse has eight sons, and he goes and gets seven of them. He got, these are all my candidates. Here's this guy, this guy, this guy. They all look, some of them were uh, soldiers. They all look the part. He gets everything from his oldest, but he misses one. He picks everybody out except for David. You know where David was? He was out in the fields. He was out there hanging out with the sheep. You know why? Because he was a kid. But he was completely looked over. Ever felt that way? I mean, we're being real today, right? Have you ever felt looked over? I mean, doesn't it cut a little deep? And I'm not just saying by God. I'm talking about by like mom or dad or best friend. I'm talking to you students. You go to school, week in, week out. You ever feel like everybody looks over you? You ever feel like everybody looks at everybody else but you? Like nobody knows you're here, you're on a planet on your own. You ever felt looked over? It hurts. It cuts deep. Let me tell you something. You may feel looked over, but God knows exactly where you are. He says that he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you, calls you the apple of his eye. He is crazy about you. He wants a relationship with you. He knows exactly where you are. And it may just be that you feel looked over, but it may just be he's preparing you in the field for something later. 
So he looks at all of his sons, and Sam says, Samuel says, yeah, I don't see anybody here. Did you have anybody else? And Jesse, oh, yeah, I've got another son. He's out in the field. His name's David. He's a young kid. He's not real great. He probably smells like sheep poo, but whatever. You can bring him in here. And so in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 12, here's what it says. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, and handsome features, but smelled like sheep poo. Not really. I said that. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took this horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. I think that's important or it wouldn't have been in there. He did it right in front of the very same brothers that were pointed out first. He anointed them right in front of them. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. I think it's interesting that the very one that was looked over is now being poured over. The very one that was looked past, that dad even looked past, all of his friends looked past, and now is taking a knee in front of a prophet. And the prophet takes this anointing oil and pours it over him and says, whispers in his ear, son, you're the next king. I love that picture. Because many times we feel that way. We feel looked over. We feel unimportant. And we think that God has forgotten we're even there when in reality, he is probably just preparing you for that time when you're sitting out there all alone. And if we just listen for the Father's voice, you'd be real where we are, be honest about who we are, and say, God, I, I know you've not looked over me, but I'm not feeling you. Just be in the field doing what you do and listen. Because one day, you may hear David... Somebody's here to see you. You may hear Michael. It's time to see you. Justin, somebody's here to see you. Come on in. I want you to meet someone. And you take a knee. And the anointing is placed on you. So what do you think happened from that day? David, anointed king at a young age. You think he took that anointing oil, that, that horn that he had, the anointing oil, and bronzed it and made some bling out of it and wore it around like, what? That's not at all what he did. He went back to working in the field. Went back to being a shepherd because it wasn't his time. His anointing was there, but his appointing wasn't there yet. He moves forward into the story of David, and there's another day when he's working the fields, and he hears his voice again, David, your brothers need some food. And this is the story everyone knows, and we're going to walk through it fast because of that. But David is bringing food to his brothers who are fighting a fight. That fight happens to be between Goliath or the Philistines and the Israelites. And this big old guy, now I'm not saying, I don't make light of who he is. When we say Jai, he's nine feet tall. Well, somewhere in, yeah, he's still taller than that. But nine feet tall, right? Nine foot tall, got all this metal. And he says, look, here's the deal. I'm out here. I'm going to fight you. I'll fight your best. You bring your best. Whoever wins serves the other one. Pretty simple. Well, David walks on the scene. Everybody's scared of him. Why? Because he's nine feet tall is probably why they're scared of him. Like, you're going, oh, I would have took him. No, you would not have. You, would, you don't, never mind. You would not have taken a nine foot tall giant who was ready and does this. This is what he does. The dude was nine feet tall, okay? Get it together because that's huge, right? And so David walks up, little guy, still young, probably 15 or less, walks up and sees this guy coming out saying, send your best and I'll send my best. We, I've, and we're, I'm, I'm your best and I will take him out and I'm going to feed your bodies to the field. And David's like, who's this guy? 
who's this chump? And they're like, well, I mean, he's Goliath and he's pretty bad. And they were like, so why, why is nobody facing him? They're like, well, David, you need to chill a little bit, dude, because, again, we're being looked over again. David, you're little, dude. You're, you're young. You don't know what you're talking about. He's like, look, well, this one time I was out in the field and a lion came and I jacked him up. And then a bear came and I jacked him up, too. And then Saul, the king, says, well, okay, if you're jacking them up, you want to take him? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So David takes his rag and his rock, walks out in front of this nine-foot-tall dude. Then he goes up to him, and he looks at him, and Goliath laughs at him. You talk about being laughed over. The very giant you're about to face is laughing at you. And he says, what am I, dog? You're going to bring toys to me? He says, bring me somebody real. And David said, you might come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, and I'm about to take you out. And then it says that David ran to the battle. Listen, get this picture. David, Goliath, David, and he says he ran to the battle. So he grabs it, and he goes, ah, and takes off. That trips me out because you know Goliath is going, what in the, and, and, it's, and the rock comes, hits him in the head. Drops down to the ground. David tells you, I'm going to feed your body to the field and to the birds of the air, and I'm going to chop your head off. Guess what he does? Grabs his own sword, not it. Grabs Goliath's sword, chops his head off, picks it up, and says, now what? Maybe, since four people thought that was great, I, I just think that's incredible. And the easy takeaway is to say, you've got giants in your life. And you can slay your giants. Just take them on and pray that God will help you. That's the easy takeaway. And we can all go, yay, go Jesus. And we can cheer it on. And then we walk away from here and Monday happens. Because have you ever had a giant in your life? You can fill in that blank. You know what the giant is. And you say, I can slay this because David slayed this. I can slay this. But then Monday, Tuesday hits. And that giant's too big all of a sudden. It's because I think we've been taught that story possibly wrong. Think about it like this. What if we put ourselves in a place it's not supposed to be? What if we're saying we're David when in reality David should be Jesus? Jesus should be the one fighting our giants, not us, because if we do it, we'll mess it up. But if we put Jesus there and say, hey, I'm behind you. I'm the children of Israel just cheering you on and saying, go, Jesus, and let him slay your giants, then your giants will fall. Because sometimes we have to change our focus. To win the fight. The fight is real, but sometimes we have to change our focus. It's what we focus on. We don't focus on the giant and how big the giant is. We focus on how big the God is who's going to whip that giant's hind end. And I want to tell you, I don't know what giants, what chains, what things you have holding you down, but let me just tell you this. There's a great big God. If you're a believer today and you've said yes to him, there's a great big God that said, I sent my son Jesus, and he took those sins and those shame on him on the cross, and he buried them in the tomb. But let me tell you, he didn't stay in the tomb. Three days later, he showed he had victory over those sins. He showed he had victory over that stuff, busted out of the tomb, and said, I'm alive. I have victory over sin. I have victory over death. I have victory over hell. And you can have victory over the chains in your life if you just fix our focus on the one who can take care of it. The story moves past there. You think he went straight to the palace? No. He went back to work in the fields. Why? Because he was true to what he said he was. He was a shepherd. His anointing was there but his appointing hadn't happened yet. Many times, those two things are at different times. 
And if we're not careful, we can get so focused on the fact that, well, I'm anointed to do this. I'm called to do this, but I'm not doing it yet. And we get so focused on that that we forget to learn here in the fields what we're going to use in the battlefields. Don't get so focused on the appointing that you miss the blessing of the anointing. Because if you said yes to God, guess what? You're anointed. That don't mean you're a pastor. It don't mean you're whatever. You're anointed. Can you wear that and know that? God has a purpose and plan for your lives. It breaks me every time I think about it. Because I'm nothing. I know my mess. I know my struggles. But he says, you're anointed, son. I've got a plan. And right now, you're anointed. You may not be appointed to where you think you should be, but you just understand. You trust in me and keep listening for my voice, and one day you'll hear it. Tori, somebody wants to see you. We fast forward, and I'm almost done, I promise, 20 years later. Did you know it was 25 plus years from the time David was anointed king to the time he was appointed king? He was 30 years old when he started in the palace. And that's when we hear the scene of David and Bathsheba. He was alone and, and he was in the palace, you know, and goes up on the rooftop. Maybe you know the story, but I want to read this verse because it's very, very important that we don't miss it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, underline if you're an underlining person, kings go off to war. David sent Joab, Joab was David's captain, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Did you see it? All the kings go off to war is where he should be, but David remained in Jerusalem. David wasn't where he should have been. A lot of sin, a lot of stuff could be stopped right there if we would just be where we're supposed to be and not where we're not supposed to be, right? But we're so easily drawn by our own desires. Sin always starts with misplaced desires. Might be something you want to write down, tattoo on your forehead, or whatever it is you need to do to remember it, because that is good stuff. Sin always starts with misplaced desires. We desire something else more than the heart of God, whether it be her, whether it be him, whether it be this, whether it be money, whether it be physical pleasure, whatever it is, sin always starts right there with misplaced desires. And we see the story, and I'm going to walk quickly through it, and that is he goes up, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. He's like, mm, she's fine. And so he asks her to come in there. They hang out, and after they get in hanging out, he finds out everything's great. Hey, this is cool. I send her back home. Woo, that was a good night. Everything was great because sin's pleasurable for a season, isn't it? That's something else we don't want to talk about in church. If it wasn't fun, nobody would want to do it, would they? I mean, I mean, am I the only one being honest about it in the room? Or Don't look at me like I'm crazy. It's the truth. But for a season, it's the consequences that kind of stink about it, right? Because <laughs> everything's great until he gets a knock on the door. And Mari Povich is there and says, uh, you are. <laughs> you, you are the dad. You are the dad. He said, uh-oh. 
And so some of y'all laughing because y'all watch it every day. You got to sit on DVR just to see him say, you are the dad. And like, oh, he's the dad, what? You know, you, anyway, y'all act like you ain't seen it. Don't act more holy than me. So <laughs> get past it, Tori. Anyway, so he tells him he's the dad. David goes into instant crisis mode. What does he do? Try to cover it up. I got a plan. I'm going to bring her husband in from the battle. They're all out fighting. He's one of the best. I'm going to bring him back in. I'm going to pretend to really care and ask him how everybody's doing. And then I'm going to let him hang out with his wife because when he hangs out with his wife, nobody knows that it's my baby and not his baby. Good plan, except for the man that he called out, Uriah, was, the, was a better man than he was at the time. His integrity was stronger than he was. And he said, I'm not doing that. My men are off at war. I'm going to sleep on the front steps. So he didn't even go in. David said, plan B, I'm going to get him drunk. That'll work. <laughs> so he gets him hammered. And they, I don't know, whatever, they get drunk. And he thinks, he'll surely fall. Nope. He's still strong. He said, I'm not going to even go in the house. And he sleeps on the front porch. So David sends him off and says, here's plan B. You think you got a jacked up past? Listen to this. David, anointed king of Israel, the man who was a giant slayer, the man who was called a man after God's own heart, sends a letter to have Uriah sent to the front end of the war, at the very front of the battlefields. And when it gets the worst, when the heat gets going, the arrows start flying, everyone step back and let him be killed. And that's what he did. He is now a murdering adulterous liar. But he was anointed by the prophet. Tommy laps, and after he passed away, he brings Bathsheba to be his wife, still trying to look like the great guy. Oh, bless him. You know, her husband's died. I'm going to take care of him. Brings her in to be his wife. Everything's fine, right? Until he gets another knock on the door. A man named Nathan. Nathan, a prophet. Remember Samuel? One just like him. His name's Nathan. Nathan looks at him and tells him a story about a man that had sheep. And he's so smooth the way he handled it. He says, yeah, a man had a bunch of sheep, a lot of money, loaded. Another guy has one, one special lamb. He loved, raised it, took care of it. And the man that had the many had his taken away for himself for his own. Tells the story, goes into it, you can read it for yourself. It's a great story. And then God says, what do you think about this, David? David said, have mercy on this man. But Shane, this man should be put to death. I can't believe he would do that. And you know what Nathan says? You are the man. You're the one who did it. Side note, if you don't have a Nathan in your life, you need one. Don't think you're that awesome. Don't think you're that great. And I say it to every pastor in this room. Every man, every woman in this room, every young person, every old person, you need somebody in your life that'll get up in your junk and tell you when you're wrong, and they can do it in Jesus' name. I got one in this room, at least one right now, sitting in the very back. Never been here before, but he some reason came today, and he didn't know I was going to talk about him. Awesome man of God. Who don't have a problem looking at me and saying, I love you, but in cause I love you, I need to call you out. And what Nathan says to him drives David to his knees. Listen, look at this picture. One time on his knees in front of a prophet being anointed. The next time he's in front of his, a prophet on his knees in conviction. And he says, have mercy on me. Wouldn't it be neat to know the conversation that David had with God right then? Guess what? We know. Psalm 51. Do you know Psalm 51 was written by David right after that happened? 
It's one of the greatest psalms. And I'm going to read it real quick, and I promise you I'm done. Michael, you can bring the gang up if you want to. Here's what it says. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Check this out. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Listen, against you and you only. Sometimes we could fix some sin right there if we would just change our focus again. And that is this. It's not always the people that you're sinning against. It's not even your husband, your wife. It is the God of all creation who loved you and sent his best for you. That is who we sin against. And if we could change our focus and look at it like that, it might stop it early on. And then he goes on to say, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Listen, verse 10. Oh, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have you ever been there? If you're here and God's there and you're going, one time in my life, I feel like God was a lot closer, but for some reason right now, he seems a million miles away. Read Psalm 51 to him and say, create in me a pure heart. Restore to me that joy that I had of your salvation because right now I'm not feeling it and I'm just asking you to restore it, God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In verse 13, here we go. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. He said, if you forgive me, if you'll create in me a pure heart, then I'll teach other people about the junk that I've done, and it'll turn people from your ways. In other words, the mess that you see, the mistakes that you see made can always be made a miracle. God loves to make miracles from mistakes. And you may have had some mess in your life. And you may have some chains that you feel like are holding. You need to understand this. That God is there saying, if you will listen for my voice, you will come back to me. You will ask for me to, to, to change. If you will come to me and I will forgive you of your sins. He says, I'll forgive you as far as east is from the west. I'll throw your sins into the depths of the sea. And you need to know this. He is not holding them against you. He loves you. He has created a place for you. And he's designed a relationship that you can be one with him. And people of God, let me just tell you, if we ask for He'll give it. Have you ever felt like the, the tie, the fly behind you that's on the bush is holding you up? Because the chains are there. Know this. That is one of the greatest tricks of Satan. To hold your past against you. But do you know something? God says, you're the only one doing that. It's not me. If you've said yes to me and you've asked me to forgive you, I've forgiven your sins as far as he says from the West. I love you. Let me tell you what he says about you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is, the old is gone. The new is here. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer yet live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, 1 Peter 2 9 says, You are a chosen people. Say that about yourself. I am chosen. 
I am chosen. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, God's special possession. Say that about yourself, God's special possession. That's the things that God calls you. That you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. John 1, 12, yet to all that received into him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what he says about you. But you want to know my favorite one? We sang about it a while ago. John 8, 36, so it says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, say it with me, you are free indeed. He set you free. If you go back to your chains, that's on you. But God says, I've set you free, and you are free indeed. And all you've got to do is say, God, take this junk from me. I can't fight this battle, but you can. And so give it to him. The Son sets you free. You are free indeed. Let's sing that, Michael. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am You are for me, not against me I am who you say I am One more time I am chosen, not forsaken I am who you say I am You are for me, not against me I am who you say I am. Father, we thank you for uh, <laughs> that we are who you said we are, Father. Lord, that the, the, the screwed up things that we say about ourselves, that's not who we are. The things that the world says about us, Father, that's not who we are. We are who you say we are, Father. We're part of your body. We're created in your image. We're free. We're redeemed. We're heirs of the promise. Those are the things that we are, Father God. And I thank you, Father God, that every person in here, Father, would hold on to the truth about who you say they are. Father, I pray that our perspective, just like Tori preached today, would be that we don't keep our eyes on the problem, we keep our eyes on you as you run ahead of us. You run before us, Father God. So Lord, we keep our eyes focused and trained on you. Because if we look at the problem, Father God, we begin to see and compare ourselves as we stack against the problem. And then we begin, we begin to say something that's not true about ourselves. But if we'll look at you and not the problem, Father God, we begin to hold on to and believe the things that you say about us, Father God. Because the problem, Father God, when we keep our eyes on the problem, we begin to define ourselves in terms of the problem. But Father, we keep our eyes on you. We begin to define ourselves in terms of what you say about us. So, Father, we commit and we promise to keep our eyes on you, Father God, so that we will see ourselves as you see us. We'll walk as you tell us to walk, Father God. We'll just keep our eyes on you, Father God, because that time period between anointing and appointing, Father God, 
we're okay. Even if the appointing never happens, Father God, it's good to walk in the anointing and just to be with you. <laughs> I'd rather be there than anywhere else, Father God. Just in your anointing, in your presence, walking with you. And whatever happens, happens, because your presence is all I need. We thank you for that, Father. Thank you for walking with us this week. Be with us, Father God. Give us grace to, to, to walk out what you've spoken about us, Father, to be your representatives, to walk in freedom. Give us the grace to do it, Father God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.